church, Regal Cinemas in Newport News almost 12 years ago. I was able to go out and get popcorn when Fred was preaching. I was ready to watch Dunkirk again. I'll just leave my notes on my pew. But uh, anyways, it's good to be here with you guys. Um, what a week we had. But it's good to be here. It's always good to, when life throws you curveballs, ups and downs, peaks and valleys, to come together as we have and just remind yourself of the fact that God's the same yesterday, today, and forever. That you can sing songs like when you walk into the room and you can read psalms like Psalm 91 and reflect on God's goodness even when uh, life itself seems to project on him that he's not. And you can remember that no matter what circumstance you're in, God is still good. And uh, like Paul said in 1 Thessalonians 4.13, we don't mourn without hope like the rest of the world. And if Denise taught us anything, it's uh, hope. Her hope wasn't just in her healing. Her hope, her chief hope was in Jesus Christ. So ultimately, her greatest hope has been fulfilled. And tonight, that's exactly what I want to talk about. Hope. Keeping hope in a world that sometimes seems like it's void of it or reasons to have it. Um, I want to look at it from another angle, though. We've been in this series. We've got giant inflatable cell phones here for a reason. We've been in a series called Your Cell, Your Soul, Eternal Wisdom for a Smartphone Age. And the timing for it is because 10 years ago, they released the first iPhone. And then in 2006, after some 1 billion had been sold, and there are now more smart devices than there are people on the planet, uh, Time Magazine named the iPhone the single most influential gadget of all time, saying that it fundamentally changed our relationship to computing and information, a change likely to have repercussion for decades to come. So the question becomes, and what we've been looking at as a church, is what are these repercussions? Right? Now that there are screens everywhere, technology everywhere, what's its proper place? At least what's its proper place in a life that wants to keep Jesus Christ in his proper place, at the center of our focus, at the center of our hearts, and at the center of our lives. All these technological innovations and inventions are invitations for us to look at our uh, beliefs and how do we live them out in our current context. But for every context, we have a timeless text, God's word, which speaks to every issue we've looked at. We've looked at situational awareness. We've looked at the power of our words. We've looked at authenticity in a selfie culture. <laughs> We've looked at burnout and rest. We've looked at recapturing wonder. And tonight, as I said, I want to look at hope and uh, simply how we keep optimism in an outrage culture. If you're taking notes, you can put that down as the title, Keeping Optimism in an Outrage Culture. And what I want to look at is Psalm 73. So if you got a Bible, you can turn to Psalm 73. If you got a U version on your phone, you can swipe there. If you have neither of those, there are Bibles in the pew. So you basically have no excuse. Psalm 73 is where we're turning. But as you turn there, Stephanie Birch gave such a, a great prophetic word at the end of our service last week about how we can't pitch our tents amidst bitterness. We deal with it, we grapple with it, but our faith allows us to face it and move through it. And we don't pitch our camp in bitterness and just reflecting on that and reading this week and planning for this sermon, Proverbs 15, 15 seemed timely because it says, for the despondent, every day brings trouble. But for the happy heart, life is a continual feast. Or as it says in the amplified version, a glad heart has a continual feast regardless of the circumstances. So the question is, how do we keep discouragement from making us despondent? How do we keep a happy heart in the midst of a raging culture or a culture where it seems hope is fleeting? But I want to read from Psalm 73, and I'm going to read this in its entirety. In Psalm 73, verse 1, it says, Truly God is good to Israel, to those whose hearts are pure. 
But as for me, I almost lost my footing. My feet were slipping, and I was almost gone. For I envied the proud when I saw them prosper despite their wickedness. They seem to live such painless lives. Their bodies are so healthy and strong. They don't have troubles like other people. They're not plagued with problems like everyone else. They wear pride like a jeweled necklace and clothe themselves with cruelty. These fat cats have everything their hearts could ever wish for. They scoff and speak only evil. In their pride, they seek to crush others. They boast against the very heavens, and their words strut throughout the earth. And so the people are dismayed and confused, drinking in all their words. What does God know, they ask? Does the Most High even know what's happening? Look at these wicked people, enjoying a life of ease while their riches multiply. Did I keep my heart pure for nothing? Did I keep myself innocent for no reason? I get nothing but trouble all day long. Every morning brings me pain. If I had really spoken this way to others, I would have been a traitor to your people. So I tried to understand why the wicked prosper. But what a difficult task it is. Then I went into your sanctuary, O God, and I finally understood the destiny of the wicked. Truly you put them on a slippery path and send them sliding over the cliff to destruction. In an instant they are destroyed, completely swept away by terrors. When you arise, O Lord, you will laugh at their silly ideas as a person laughs at dreams in the morning. Then I realized that my heart was bitter, and I was all torn up inside. I was so foolish and ignorant, I must have seemed like a senseless animal to you. Yet I still belong to you. You hold my right hand. You guide me with your counsel, leading me to a glorious destiny. Whom have I in heaven but you? I desire you more than anything on earth. My health may fail and my spirit may grow weak, but God remains the strength of my heart. He is mine forever. Those who desert him will perish, for you destroy those who abandon you. But as for me, how good it is to be near God. I have made the sovereign Lord my shelter, and I will tell everyone about the things you do. Let's pray. God, we thank you that in every season you're the strength of our heart. And God, that you hold our right hand, and you declare that you are ours forever. God, we pray that tonight uh, that would be overwhelmingly clear to every heart here. God, that you care, that you pursue us, and you welcome us in your presence. God, I pray that your Holy Spirit would be here ministering through these words. God, be in my words. Be uh, speaking through your word, your eternal word that's eternally relevant. In Jesus' name, everybody said amen. So we read that chapter, and we reflect on our culture. And a lot of times it's referenced what we're going through as, as culture wars. And there's many people that would say that every side, in a way, feels like they're losing. That there's a battle in our culture, and it always seems like the opponent is taking ground. And the, the media certainly lays hold of this. Finding and pumping the crisis of the week, of the day, of the last 15 minutes. Erwin uh, McManus, he's one of my favorite authors, one of my favorite preachers. He pastors out in California and he was giving an account recently about how he was invited to Fox News to talk about immigration and all the policies and the like. And he got there, and the producer, I don't know how they hadn't had this conversation before this point, asked him his stance. Well, what's your stance? And he told her in no short terms what his stance was. And she said to him, well, that's, not, that's, that's too holistic a view. We need you to take a side. We need you to take a quote-unquote extreme. And he said, well, that's not my stance. And he never made it on the show that day. And we realize that news networks, they need an extreme. And it happens on both sides. It happens on many channels because panic and fear, they sell universally. The networks need a crisis. So often 
for us as viewers, when we quote unquote want to stay informed, it can result in us staying panicked or fearful for the future. We got to ask ourselves, if that's the price, is it worth the cost? And how should it change how we consider and consume the news? You know, there was a survey at the beginning of 2016 by the Pew Research Center where 62% of Americans access their news on social media. Of that, 64% say they get it from one site, with Facebook being the most common. As people absorb the news in addition to whatever their cousin just ate for lunch and what their selfie just, their best friend just took as a selfie, that's how they get their news. And for better or worse, Facebook has become the largest media source for news in America. And it's not just news that need our attention to make money. People on Facebook, most of us, we want attention on social media because it makes us feel good. We want the bursts of approval in forms of likes and shares and the bursts of dopamine that we've talked about that come with it. When we experience that on social media, it gives us a good feeling. So the question is, what gives us that action? And studies show while you share joyful and inspirational things on social media, it might do just that for your friends and followers. It might inspire them. It might comfort them. It might bring them joy. But it doesn't produce all the likes and the like that make you feel good. It's been found that it's the outraged, fury-filled posts that get the most likes, comments, and action, reaching beyond your base. Matthew Scher, who wrote a piece called What Emotion Goes Viral the Fastest for the Smithsonian, he said that anger is a high arousal emotion, which drives people to take action. It makes you feel fired up, which makes you, feel, which makes you more likely to pass things on. In Cliff Notes' form, rage is contagious. Rage is contagious. Fear, panic, and the ensuing rage, it captures ratings and it captures likes. But here's the thing. None of those are biblical for the believer in Jesus Christ. So the question is, how do we keep our perspective right when the culture is raging? Or how do we keep optimism in our outrage culture? And if we actually look at Scripture and through Scripture, the sky isn't falling. And I want to look in the Old Testament at a passage from 2 Kings. It's chapter 6, verses 14 through 23. It's from the account of the prophet Elisha. And in verse 14, it says, So one night the king of Aram sent a great army with many chariots and horses to surround the city, the city where Elisha was. And it says, When the servant of the man of God got up early the next morning and went outside, there were troops, horses, and chariots everywhere. Oh, sir, what will we do now? The young man cried to Elisha. Don't be afraid, Elisha told him, for there are more on our side than on theirs. Then Elisha prayed, Oh, Lord, open his eyes and let him see. The Lord opened the young man's eyes, and when he looked up, he saw that the hillside around Elisha was filled with horses and chariots of fire. As the, as the army advanced toward him, Elisha prayed, Oh, Lord, please make them blind. So the Lord struck them with blindness as Elisha had asked. Then Elisha went out and told them, you have come the wrong way. This isn't the right city. Follow me, and I will take you to the man you are looking for. And he led them to the city of Samaria. As soon as they had entered Samaria, Elisha prayed, O Lord, now open their eyes and let them see. So the Lord opened their eyes, and they discovered that they were in the middle of Samaria. When the king of Israel saw them, he asked Elisha, my father, should I kill them? Should I kill them? Of course not, Elisha replied. Do we kill prisoners of war, give them food and drink, and send them home again to their master? So the king made a great feast for them and sent them home to their master. And after that, the raiders stayed away from the land of Israel. There's a lot in there that I want to hit on, but 
I want to look at verse 15, where his servant says, oh, sir, what will we do now? You know, myopia is this condition of nearsightedness. And spiritually, sometimes I believe we can get that where we only see the current circumstances. And because of that, so often, we in the church, we can cry wolf, claim that the sky is falling. The, the criminal thing is that when we act like chicken little, we come off as little chickens instead of little Christs. And, and we are called to be little Christ. The very word Christian means little Christs. You know, when... We adopted Raj. We've adopted a son from India. He was 17 months old, and he was behind developmentally. It was anticipated. We knew that was coming. But it had been a long time, and he hadn't started uh, even attempting to walk at that point. And pediatricians were, had told us that in one of his eyes, he was nearsighted. So they were saying that might be part of why he has struggled to walk. And spiritually, spiritual myopia, nearsightedness can threaten us from walking in faith because we cower in fear. Well, Praise report, Raj is walking over the past week, praise God. He might still need glasses, we found out on Monday, but that's a win-win because he's cute, but glasses might make him even cuter. So, but I tell you that to tell you that spiritually, so often we can't have nearsightedness, and it keeps us from walking in faith. And there are two corrective lenses for the believer that helps us through hopelessness or despondency, and and they're simple. It's the cross and the grave. Why the cross? Because it shows us God's heart. It shows us his love, and then the grave shows us God's power. Because there are a lot of people that love you, but they might not have the power to deliver you. They might not have the power to work the miracle you need, but the grave shows God's resurrection power and that God is almighty. And that God's character and his sovereignty, when you combine the two, his love and his power can give us hope for any situation. But the question is, does our theology match our perspective? Because so often theology can just become jargon. Gospel, the good news, grace, where we, we've heard it before. Somebody says, I'm going to preach on grace, and you're like, yeah, I've heard this one before. I'm going to preach on the gospel. Yeah, the gospel's pretty simple. Can we get from the milk to the meat? But Hebrews 13.10, it's a powerful verse. It says, look after each other so that none of you fails to receive the grace of God. And what's intriguing is the author of Hebrews technically is writing to people who have already accepted grace. He's writing to the church. So the question is, how does somebody who knows the good news of the grace of God, accepting Jesus, miss out on the grace of God? Well, it's interesting because he's writing to Jewish believers where everything was going great, and then there was an outbreak of persecution. They're in crisis. By many measures, it seemed like the sky was falling. There's now people being killed, crucified, and eradicated. And the author of Hebrews is essentially saying, hey, don't give up. Keep at it. God is good. And if you continue to read that verse, it says, look after each other so that none of you fails to receive the grace of God. Watch out that no poisonous root of bitterness grows up to trouble you. And it's powerful because I think in the church we've got a lot of stereotypes for the root of bitterness. You hear about people talking bad about other people. You're like, oh, that's the roots of bitterness. Or or talking bad about their childhood. You're like, oh, that's roots of bitterness. But you look at this passage and you look at what we just read in Psalm 73. Psalm 73, verse 21, he said, Then I realized that my heart was bitter, and I was all torn up inside. And that chapter had started. He he said, Truly God is good to Israel, to those whose hearts are pure. But as for me, I almost lost my footing. My feet were slipping, and I was almost gone. He believed the right theology, but it didn't translate to his current perspective. 
and how he considered the world around him. He was considering it from the view of an atheist. You know, I, I saw a quote recently, don't envy the mouse for the cheese in his trap. Asaph saw things through the eyes of eternity. When he saw them through the eyes of eternity, he realized he was doing just that. You can lose the context of the trap when you lose the context of eternity. That's why it's so important to recall, to recite, to rehearse the good news of Jesus Christ and the gospel of Jesus Christ and the grace we have. Otherwise, like the Hebrews, we can miss out on the depths of grace. 2 Peter 3.18 says, grow in the grace and knowledge of Jesus Christ. How do we do that? We keep telling the good news of Jesus over and over again to others, to ourselves. We keep coming together to remind each other of the hope we have even in our culture because times may get worse, not better. Jesus may have implied that in some of his teaching, but there's a danger in giving up hope. You know, you move from 2 Kings 6 into 2 Kings 7 and things, they get even worse. In 2 Kings 7, Israel is experiencing an even worse siege at the hands of the enemy that God had commanded the Israelites to feed and then send home in chapter 6. I mean, talk about, did I keep myself innocent for no reason? Wouldn't we have been better if their blood was spilled and we weren't spilling the blood of our own children because we're starving? Is this the reward for our obedience? You know, the king's officer in 2 Kings 70 gives up hope. Elisha had prophesied deliverance, saying that this time tomorrow, basically, that there would be deliverance. But the, the king's officer had given up hope. He said that couldn't happen even if the Lord opened the windows of heaven. This is hopelessness and despair defined. Even if God did his best, we'd still get the worst. He'd given up on God and his power. And because of that lack of faith, Elisha prophesied that he wouldn't see the deliverance. And when that deliverance came, he was trampled at the gate by the people rushing to their deliverance. And what's sobering in retrospect is Elisha was at both situations and was this man as well. And had he simply forgotten their deliverance previously? Because as dangerous as myopia can be spiritually, so can amnesia. Forgetting what God has done to show his character, his power, his love, and his sovereignty in the past. And that's why it's so important, again, to remember, to rehearse, to recall, and to recite the good news. Because when we do that, we're immediately filled with gratitude. Gratitude over garbage. You know, there's, a, there's an old axiom from the early days of computing garbage in, garbage out. Faulty data produces faulty results. Wrong numbers produce wrong answers. And some of us, we have an input problem. What are we feeding ourselves? Is, is, is staying in the know, again, is it feeding us panic? Is it feeding us fear? Because that can produce unstable Christians. None of those compute with the biblical perspective. They're faulty to the life of faith. We have to replace it with just this call for gratitude in, because when you put gratitude in, you get hope out. Gratitude over garbage. It says in 1 Thessalonians 5.18, give thanks in all circumstances. And it's not that God needs the praise. It's that we need the perspective in all circumstances and make sure that his promises, his power, his past provision, that they're all in our input. Because, again, our nearsightedness can afflict our perspective of the present. It affects our amnesia of the past. And last but definitely not least, it hurts our foresight for the future. The NFL is coming. Like there was no segue in announcements, there's no segue for that. But last year, the last time we saw meaningful football, it was the Super Bowl. And 
I was watching it with Nate Nowatney, who's not here. I'm not, I don't plan on throwing him under the bus, but just in case, he's not here, so we're safe. But I was watching it at his house with maybe some of you guys. And he's the biggest Patriots fan you will meet in your life. He's from Boston, and he will tell you all about it. But uh, that Super Bowl didn't start well for him. The Falcons went up 28-3. to And I was sitting next to Nate, and he was in crisis. <laughs> he was on his love seat covering everything but one eye, like didn't, I, with Nate, you want to poke the bear because he pokes back. But in that moment, I didn't want to say a word. I didn't want to look at him because he looked like he could just implode or explode. Didn't know which one, but he had all but given up hope. 28 to 3 in like, I think it was the second quarter. But then the second half, the Patriots started getting back into it and Nate started getting back into it. And by the time overtime came where the game was tied and the Patriots had the ball, he was roaring, like jumping up and down. He was extremely excited. And it was all a game of momentum. Atlanta started with it. New England finished with it in one of the greatest comebacks of all time. And that's not even an exaggeration. We got to realize life will have momentum shifts. There will be many times where it feels like we're losing. But we know how the game ends. And today is never the final score. The enemy may seem to score, but God can turn what seems like a damnable Friday into a good Friday through his resurrection power. And when the enemy points to the scoreboard, we can point to the final score. We win. Revelation has a lot that eludes interpretation, but that much is clear. We win. The gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ is so good because it touches on the past, it touches on the present, and it touches on the future. We're broken, we're breaking, but that's old news to the believer. I was talking to somebody recently who commented, uh, just we were talking about what's in the news, and she said, it's worse than it ever was. And my question was, is it, or are we just more exposed now? Or did we live as the majority and not the minority, or the predominant culture and not the persecuted culture? Because two things haven't changed. Sin has broken man since Eden. And sin has been beaten at the cross. None of that has changed over the past couple thousand years. And the bad news comes before the good news. It comes before the good news in the Bible. When you read Genesis, man, man falls, but then it also comes with us. But with the bad news, we realize the sky isn't falling, but the table is actually being set to share the gospel. There's a, a man named Malcolm Muggeridge. Excuse me, Malcolm Muggeridge. Say that ten times fast. He's an English journalist and late convert to Christianity, he once famously said that the depravity of man is at once the most empirically verifiable reality, but at the same time the most intellectually resisted fact. You know, the gospel, again, is this bad news before the good news. You can't truly repent until you realize your need to repent. You can't truly grasp the goodness of God's grace and what Jesus Christ did until you realize the depth of your depravity and how much he heals you and delivers you. And here's the thing. At some point, as we watch the news, we see Charlottesville, we see all these other things happening. The enemy overplays his hand because he's doing half the work for us. As he plays to our brokenness again and again and again and again, and man witnesses it. Man, it's just highlighting the fact that we need redemption, we need healing, we need a savior. He's actively setting the table for the church to be a light. But the question is, will we be? Will we find ourselves catching this contagious outrage? Because our culture thrives on finding things to be outraged about. 
It feeds on pessimism. But in this culture, the church should be an almost blinding light and almost annoyingly positive presence with optimism and hope. Because God's grace is a gift in the person of Jesus. We don't accept it based on our past. We don't accept it based on our pedigree, but because of Jesus. And it's the good news. We're a people of the good news. Our news is always good because God's the same yesterday, today, and forever. We basically don't have an option. The gospel itself means good news. It's news that good, that is good. And so much of the news in our culture, culture and country, I just made up a word, culture, so much of the news is bad in our country. But our news is transcendent. The good news is transcendent, and it extends beyond every kingdom, every culture, and every news report. It's the same yesterday, today, and forever, and it's always good because God is always good. And there's no better time to be a light than when it's dark. But we can't end up like the church in Hebrews. Man, the gospel should inspire us. The good news should invigorate us. I think it was Kevin DeYoung that said, if, if the gospel is old news to you, it'll be dull news to everyone else. Man, the grace of God should give us goosebumps. And if it doesn't, man, then you're missing out. You know, are we the people of Hebrews about to miss out on the depths of the grace of God? Are we Asaph who believes God is good, but we're almost stumbling? And just to make sure you hear me out, because you can go too far one direction with this. The good news of Jesus Christ doesn't mean that we ignore the news. We ignore what's going on. We ignore what we see on Facebook. It means to recognize the root of the problem, which is sin, that man is broken. That's the bad news. We don't gloss over it because we can't gloss over it because, again, it proceeds and sets the table for the good news. But light doesn't ignore the problems. It exposes them. God doesn't call us to be peacekeepers, but rather peacemakers. Peacekeepers strive to keep the peace at all costs. So many in the church want to keep what Martin Luther King Jr. called a negative peace, this absence of tension. But positive peace, on the other hand, is the presence of reconciliation, of, of resolution, and of justice. In the words of Martin Luther King Jr., he says, true peace is not merely the absence of tension, it is the presence of justice. And God calls us to be peacemakers. It's a small difference as a word, but it makes a world of a difference in meaning. Peacemakers create peace by bringing reconciliation, first to God and then men that are at odds with one another. It says in Proverbs 10.10, people who wink at wrong cause trouble, but a bold reproof promotes peace. While peacemakers tackle a problem, peacekeepers wink at it and keep it moving. We don't look out at our world, especially our country and its issues, especially with racism, which runs counter to the gospel and think, well, God's on the throne God is good, so I'm just going to keep it moving. So often we can use that phrase, God is on the throne, or let's just pray about it as an excuse to ignore the cry of the oppressed or just passively embrace the status quo. But discounting problems doesn't eliminate them. Ignorance isn't bliss. Often it's folly. And if you could watch the news of the previous weeks and months and think that there's not work for the church to do and for me and you to do, then you're clowning yourself. The question we have to ask in order to keep hope and optimism and effectiveness as a light alive in our culture is do your circumstances define your faith or does your faith define your circumstances? Because if your faith is a byproduct of circumstances, then wave it goodbye. Come on, we could experience that after this past week and these past weeks as a church, but man, you see it as well in the past weeks, months, and years as our nation. But we got to remember 
God is never surprised. He's never outmatched. He's never outmaneuvered. Where the, our culture loves to magnify the size of the issues, we got to remember the size of our God. But we also got to remember the size of the lives he's calling us to. We're not called to live small. We're not called to just hold down the fort until he comes back. And we're not called to simply sit and twiddle our thumbs until he returns either. Forgive me for my probably hundredth Lord of the Rings reference from our, since our plant. But the church in the West, it, it often reminds me of the hobbits in the Shire. We love our simple pleasures. We're suspicious of those that don't look like us, think like us. We desire the right mix of a simple life mixed with the scandalous gossip of what happens out there. But we don't want the outside world to come inside. We want the outside world to stay outside, to keep the problems out there. Like, Don't expect me to leave and try to solve problems that don't affect me, especially with people that don't look like me, live like me, or think like me. Other people's issues, the problems of the underprivileged, don't invade my shire, man. But then someone comes along and tells us that we're pivotal to the solution. And we're presented with a choice. Live small or embrace greater purpose. You know, what if this reality that's getting pointed to again and again where people would say, oh, the sky is falling, is actually an invitation to broaden our horizons, to stretch our faith, and to embrace greater purpose. To stop living small, to start loving our neighbor, to concern ourselves with the downtrodden, the poor, or the persecuted. Because we've said it a million times, a faith that is inward focused, solely inward focused, is out of focus. You know, our country is in a unique and pivotal season. And because of that, the church is in a unique and pivotal season. And the church has to be courageous enough to realize that we are called to play a role. We're called to go to reach people and reconcile people first to God. Because our problem first and foremost isn't man to man, it's, it's God to man. So you reconcile first to God and then you reconcile with one another. But if I could have the worship team come up, you know, Paul replied to this call to go. And his circumstances definitely experienced momentum shifts and apparent losses. He gives this list to one of the churches in one of his letters where he says, I have worked harder been put in prison more often, been whipped times without number, and faced death again and again. Five different times the Jewish leaders gave me 39 lashes. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. Once I spent a whole night and a day adrift at sea. I've traveled on many long journeys. I've faced danger from rivers and from robbers. I've faced danger from my own people, the Jews, as well as from the Gentiles. I've faced danger in the cities, in the deserts, and on the seas. And I've faced danger from men who claim to be believers but are not. I've worked hard and long and during many sleepless nights. I've been hungry and thirsty and I've often gone without food. I've shivered in the cold without enough clothing to keep me warm. Now that sounds like the spiritual equivalent of being down 28 to 3. But again, throughout all of that, Paul could point to the final score. And for that reason, he never gave up hope. You know, he wrote the letter of Philippians, the entire letter of Philippians that we have. He wrote it from prison. And yet he speaks of rejoicing and he speaks of joy again and again and again. More than any of his letters, just the, the rate which he speaks of rejoicing. You could ask yourself, how? How can he have that output when his input is taking place in prison? And it's, he says at the end of this letter in Philippians 4, 8, he says, And now, dear brothers and sisters, one final thing. Fix your thoughts on what is true and honorable and right and pure and lovely 
and admirable. Think about things that are excellent and worthy of praise. And he goes on to say, then the God of peace will be with you. He understood that garbage in, garbage out, but your input determines your output. You see in the, in the book of Acts as well, he's in prison with, with one of the people that have been with him and they're in prison, locked up. And this wasn't like a, a nice prison. This was where you're stretched out. You're made to be uncomfortable. And they sang. They sang. May we be able to sing. And may we encounter this God of peace with us. You know, again, the last week for our church, it hasn't been easy. The last couple weeks for our nation has been hard as well. But the good news is still good news because God is still good. His grace is still sufficient. His joy still strengthens. His stripes still heal. His spirit still comforts. And his mercy endures forever. The angels in heaven still worship him. Holy, holy, holy. And Denise worships, worships with them tonight. God is on the throne. Let's worship him tonight. And let these words that we sing as we sing Psalm 91 again, let them be both your input. If, if you need these words, then, then, then let God deposit them in your heart. Let your theology become your perspective again and the way you live your life and function. And in the same way, let these words be our output. Come on, may, may these words that we sing tonight change the way we live tomorrow and next week and next month as, as God continues to empower us and be with us. But God, we just ask that you will be with us in our praise as we close out tonight. And if you need prayer for anything, I'll be right here. Dean Watney's in the back. But if we could stand, we could stand as we close. We're going to worship. And again, if you need prayer, there's opportunities for that. But let's take this time to let these words from Psalm 91 be both our input and then become our output as we worship him. Yeah. 